This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Catherine Cullen, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for January 16th. Former Alberta Premier Rachel Notley is stepping down as the provincial NDP leader. Notley tells me what she thinks it will take for Albertans to give the NDP a second crack at power. Plus, why is inflation heading in the wrong direction once again? We'll ask our economics experts. And the power panel debates what the numbers mean for the federal government as it struggles to get the cost of living down. We begin with a major shakeup on Alberta's political stage. NDP leader Rachel Notley is stepping down after almost a decade at the helm. Under her leadership, the NDP formed government in the province for the first time ever. And despite two successive election not- losses, Notley currently leads the largest official opposition in provincial history. She plans to remain as leader until her successor is chosen. Rachel Notley, welcome back to Power and Politics. Good to be here. Thanks. So why leave now? Well, you know, uh, as as uh, every leader should after an election, it's important to take stock uh, and look at what happened and, and what next steps are and, and, and what's best for the party. And so, of course, I did that uh, after the election at the very end of May. And I took some time to think that through. And I, and, and I did give it really serious consideration. And, uh, and then at a certain point when I realized that, no, I, I think it is time to, to pass the torch to someone else, I still felt strongly that it was important to to uh, you know, lead our our 19 new MLAs who are deeply competent and credible uh, through their first session to make sure that we had uh, you know our systems and processes and orientation and all that kind of stuff in place so they could get their feet wet in a relatively um, stable situation uh, before uh, we we moved on to a leadership race and so that's that's what drove my decision. You said that uh, earlier today as well in your news conference about thinking about what's best for the party and caucus. Is that another way of saying it's time for a change or is this a reflection about your own willingness to keep doing this after almost 10 years? Well, I think it's it's both. It's a, it's a combination of both. I mean, I, I have to ask myself seriously whether, uh, you know, I'm, I've got the energy to give it my all every day. Um, and, and I'm not 100% sure that, that after 10 years, that's exactly where I am. But also, quite honestly, I think it's it's fair uh, to say that there's some really good folks in our caucus, and it's time to let other people shine. And, and uh, you know, political leaders rarely get the chance to, to select and choose their exit. And I've been given the benefit of that. And, and to be able to do that at a time when the party is strong and well positioned uh, to be able to, to make the transition to a new leader, uh, I'm really privileged to be able to do that. These uh, days like this are perhaps a good moment for reflection, and so I'm hoping you'll indulge us in a little bit of that and maybe reflect a bit on uh, particularly the state of the federation right now. There's obviously pretty strained relationships between the federal government, Alberta's provincial government, Daniel Smith invoking the Sovereignty Act. How, how would you characterize the, the state of the federation this moment when it involves Alberta? Well, how, how you know, certainly... <laughs> Yeah, no, we've we've seen better days. There's no question about that. I mean, I've been quite clear. I think that uh, all the uh, the drama uh, around uh, taking every opportunity to frame absolutely every issue as uh, Ottawa's fault has uh, sold uh, both Canadians and Albertans short. 
Um, you know, there are legitimate grievances between Alberta and, and Ottawa. Some of them are political. A lot of them are circumstantial. And they are problems that need to be worked out uh, by serious people being in the room. And we have uh, not enjoyed the benefit of that kind of leadership for quite some time in this province. And, and I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's unfortunate for both Canadians and, as I said, for Albertans. So uh, that is frustrating. Um, but, uh, you know, we're going to continue to to talk about the things where Alberta needs a strong voice to stand up for uh, what's best for Alberta, but to also solve problems that we all share. Uh, because sometimes when you're in government, new challenges arise and nobody caused them. And it's a question of just of figuring out the best way to confront them and, and, and uh, um, you know, forge a new path, so- which is successful. Well, so but I do want to ask you how much of the strain that you're describing you think the federal government has to own right now? As I say, I mean, it's, it's you know, the federal government is not without fault by any means. Uh, but we also have a provincial government that has failed to come to the table in a serious way. They take every possible opportunity to politicize uh, uh, problems that are complex um, in, in a simplified way uh, that that uh, goes around what the real uh range of solutions are and ignores what the real range of solutions are. So, so yes, uh, the relationships between uh, Ottawa and Alberta have gotten worse. But I have to say that the provincial government has, uh, has, uh, doesn't come to this with clean hands because they, you can't have a grown-up conversation with them. And I will say this. I mean, uh, Albertans are going to enjoy the benefit for many, many years. Uh, the fact that we got the first pipeline to Tidewater in 50 years. We're going to enjoy the benefit through an increased return on investment uh, for the the product that we all own. That is a project that would not have happened in the current uh, environment and uh, between provincial and federal government. So on that note, or at least a related note, I want to reflect a little bit as well on energy policy and the environment. You did introduce the carbon tax when you were in power. The federal government, uh, things are not going so well, I think we can say politically with their carbon tax right now. Is there a political lesson there? Um, I mean, obviously, uh, politics uh, and democracy and responding to uh, genuine concerns of of citizens uh, uh, is always something which makes uh, challenging policy um, uh, problems uh, more difficult to resolve. So, you know, we have a a very serious affordability uh, problem in, in Canada now. Families are struggling, and and the reality of that uh, has uh, has resulted in um, uh, you know the the dilution of some of the climate uh, fighting uh, policies that have been put in place by multiple governments, and and that's a problem because I know people have very serious affordability concerns, but we also need to position uh, our economy. Uh, uh, in a way that that ensures that we are ready to deal with the reality of climate change. And it can be an opportunity, uh, but uh, there's no question that the, you know, to simplify these issues the way I've seen them simplified in some cases is it's frustrating. Do you think, I mean, would you, would you ever advise anyone to run on a carbon tax, a new carbon tax right now though, when you, when you look at the future of this issue? 
Well, I will. I will say it was probably not my most successful uh, platform, <laughs> um, but I do believe. Uh, and and whether a carbon tax is ultimately the right way to confront climate change, I do believe that uh, we need people who are who are prepared to stand up and say we must take this problem seriously. We cannot keep kicking the can down the roll uh, or down the road. Uh, uh, these problems are coming at us faster and faster and faster, and they are not solvable in a six month uh, media uh, you know, six month uh, legislative cycle. They're not solvable in a one day media cycle, and they're often not so- solvable within a four year uh, electoral cycle. Yet it is our obligation as leaders uh, to um, confront them with uh, honesty and and authenticity. And I feel that uh, we're we're losing that right now in a lot of conversations across this country. I do want to ask you one more question before I let you go about something else that you said today. You said Alberta is not a one-party province anymore. And of course, until you won in 2015, uh, it very much was. How do you know that's true, Rachel Notley? How do you know that what we saw wasn't, and I'm not saying this to flatter you, but wasn't about your personal popularity with Albertans? How, how can you be sure that there's still a future for the NDP once you're no longer leader? Well, because I have had the privilege of talking to tens, and if not hundreds of thousands of Albertans over the last many years, and I know uh, what they care about, and I know wh- what their values are, and I know what their hopes and their aspirations are, and and uh, there are many Albertans who are looking forward to a, to a progressive, um, uh, you know, entrepreneurial, uh, diverse uh, future, and, and they are looking for a party where they're not just getting their voice heard in the legislature, but they're getting their voice running the legislature. And that is something they have now. They see it and uh, they know it. And and that's why I'm feeling very confident um, about the future of our party uh, and and the future of this province uh, in the years to come. Any chance we'll ever see you in federal politics in the future? Nope. <laughs> a very succinct uh, answer to end the interview. Thank you very much for your time today, Rachel Notley. Thank you very much. Take care. The Canadian government has offered a clarification to its position on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. It comes days after the Prime Minister first laid out Canada's stance. Last week, Justin Trudeau said Canada's wholehearted support of the International Court of Justice and its processes does not mean Canada supports the premise of the case brought forward by South Africa. The CBC's Evan Dyer is on this story. So, Evan, what exactly is the government saying now? The actual words the government is using, Catherine, have not changed since Friday. Rather, they're illuminating the meaning, which uh, was apparently not clear to a lot of people. And uh, whose fault that is is an issue that that can be litigated. But certainly we can see that this was a communication effort that misfired. And we only need to look at the reactions uh, where a, a very large number of people took the prime minister to be saying that he supported Israel in this case at the International Court of Justice, that he was uh, dismissing the validity or the merit of the case brought by South Africa, as some other countries have done, the United States, uh, Britain, Germany, for example. Um, But the statement, the key sentence is the one that you just said right there at the top, which is that the fact that Canada supports the ICG does, ICJ, excuse me, does not mean that it supports the premise of South Africa's case. 
uh, left unsaid is that it also does not mean that it rejects the premise mm. of South Africa case. And I think a lot of people hearing the phrase does not support uh, took that to be a rejection of the case, which it actually is not. It's If you look at the words from other governments that really did mean to reject the case, they were pretty clear. For example, uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken for the United States calling it meritless, uh, or countries like Germany saying flat out, you know, we do not believe that Israel uh, is committing a genocide and using even stronger language, in fact, in the case of Germany. So, so uh, it, Evan, I think, I think it's easy to get a little bit, you're, I mean, you're very clearly pointing out how easy it is to get lost in the language of all yep. of this. You had a conversation with officials at Global Affairs that, that offered some clarity about what the government's official position is. What did they lay out for you? Well, I should state that I actually knew before the position was laid out, before the official position, I had already received a tip from within the government that it was going to take a neutral position. So perhaps I was already predisposed to be uh, able to hear that language. So I went back to them and I asked them quite specifically, uh, is this a statement saying that you take a position of neutrality with regards to the substance of the case, the substance of the South African case? And the answer is yes. What they told me specifically is that Canada supports the court and the case being heard at the court. But it doesn't support the case, per se, nor does it take a position against the case. It takes a position of neutrality. But also and whether it will abide by the decision. Also that it will respect, it will abide by the rulings of the court. That's what they've told me. Yeah. And so what kind of reaction has that clarification received? Well, surprise from a lot of people who thought that they had understood it well on Friday. I mean, if you look at the number of people who reacted... Uh, either positively or negatively, to a misinterpretation of what was being said. It includes people within the Trudeau government itself. Uh, you know, we saw a tweet from the health minister, Yarosex, uh, basically saying that this position means that Canada... She was, uh, to be fair, she said it, Canada doesn't support uh, the case and, and simply left it at that, which is a true statement in a way, much as one can say, I don't support the Rangers. That doesn't mean I support the Leafs. It just means that I don't support the Rangers. Uh, but we saw some other ministers, such as Anthony Housefather, excuse me, not ministers, but members, I should say, of the government MPs, going further um, and thanking the Prime Minister for taking a position in support of Israel. We saw the Consul General for Israel in Toronto doing the same thing, taking this uh, as linking Canada with the British position, the American position, the German position, and putting out a tweet uh, thanking Canada, whereas the Israeli ambassador in Ottawa appeared to interpret the, the government's message correctly and simply put out a tweet repeating that key line, the key line that we started our conversation with. Um, groups that advocate on both sides of this issue in Canada also heard this as a message of support for Israel. So we saw, for example, the Center for uh, Israel and Jewish Advocacy thanking the government, excuse me, Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs, CJA, thanking the government, while we saw NCCM, the National Council for Canadian Muslims, uh, saying that the government was supporting genocide. In both cases, basing that on a misinterpretation. So now... Many of these organizations uh, are, first of all, a little bit annoyed at the lack of clarity, but in some cases also they're asking whether there was an intent here to be ambiguous, whether the government actually wanted to be understood uh, clearly or was trying to hedge its bets or perhaps send uh, different messages to different constituencies or hoping that different constituencies might hear it differently. Of course, we have no insight into that, that intention of the government. We don't know what the intention of the government was, but certainly some of the groups uh, that heard this message one way, only to have it clarified that, no, that's not what the government actually meant, mm. are asking that question. How sincere was the government in, in its effort to communicate what its position really is? Okay, well, thank you for shedding at least some light on all of this. The CBC's Evan Dyer. Thanks for having me. 
A new snapshot of the cost of living shows it recently got worse. Canada's annual inflation rate jumped to 3.4% last month. That's up from two consecutive months of 3.1%. As this chart shows, inflation is proving to be particularly sticky. It's fallen from its peak of around 8% in 2022, but it continues to clock above the central bank's 2% target. Jimmy Jean is chief economist at Desjardins, and Peter Armstrong is a senior business reporter for CBC News. Thank you both for making time for us today. Peter, I'm going to start with you. What's going on here? What's this uh, accelerated inflation that we're seeing? You know, it, it's interesting. And I, I, I look at these numbers and I can kind of distinctly see two very different stories that I think will the difference between those stories or which story comes the one to be true will be the thing that kind of defines the economy through 2024. The, the one version is that, hey, we're making enormous progress here. This time last year, we were reveling that inflation had fallen from 6.8 to 6.4%. And here we are all the way down at 3.4. We're moving in the right direction. We're moving inexorably towards that 1% to 3% window and, in fact, the 2% target. And, and just about every forecast out there has us getting there over the course of this year and that that's good news for the economy and that'll give uh, some reason to the Bank of Canada to start cutting interest rates and all of those things. And I can make good arguments about how all that's true. But I also look at these numbers and I see a different story, that inflation's really sticky and that there's all these underlying factors that are keeping prices up and that this moment in the fight to rein in inflation is a particularly fragile one where there's a bunch of things that could happen and you can see them all happening sort of on the periphery that could boost inflation again. I'm thinking, of course, about the situation in the Red Sea, the whole global sea of uncertainty that's out there right now. All of these forces that could quite easily, without much change, conspire to start raising prices again and boosting the cost of shipping and the cost of energy and all of those things. And so I think the difference between those two stories is going to be the, the real difference maker in, in where we end up looking back at the end of 2024. So Jimmy, Peter has laid out two tales for us there, two potential paths. Uh, when you heard this, uh, this news this morning, this was somewhat expected. You, you didn't like spit your Cheerios out <laughs> when you heard, heard the data, right? Precisely. The 3.4% was widely expected, but it is true uh, that we had the three-month uh, measures, three-month annualized measures, which we tracked closely to kind of get a sense of where the year-over-year uh, headline estimates uh, is going to be uh, heading. And what we saw is, is a, a clear setback in those shorter-term measures of, of core inflation. Uh, and, uh, you know, that also adds to what we've seen earlier this month and the wage numbers, which uh, did show as well that stickiness. Uh, so that, uh, I agree, it comes to complicate the calculus a little bit as to the precise timing uh, at which the Bank of Canada will be comfortable to declare that it's time to cut interest rates. I mean, we all know that the Canadian economy is, is slowing, it's struggling. So, uh, you know, we have high hopes that at least the uh, for all that pain, we'll get uh, a gain in, in the form of uh, the disinflationary trend. But again, the inflation, the uh, Bank of Canada has a one to three percent target range, and it's going to be very difficult to cut interest rates if we're not within that target range. So, uh, you know, I, I think it was always going to be the case that there were going to be some bumps uh, along that road, and that's what we're seeing today. But uh, if, if that were to continue, that would uh, call into question whether uh, next spring might not be uh, too early for the Bank of Canada to start that process. So, Peter, what do you think? Does this mean for um, 
mortgage holders, for instance, they're watching the prospect of rates finally lowering, just 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 slipping away. I, I don't know about slipping away, but definitely moving down a couple of months. I was, I was just looking on the Bloomberg terminal to get a sense of where markets actually think. People that are betting in the swaps about where they think uh, interest rates will actually be. And I compared it to where they were at the beginning of the month. And it tells a remarkable tale that the, the Bank of Canada meeting in March is considered a live one. There's some people that think there might be a rate cut then. Um, and back at the beginning of the month, there was as high as a 40% chance that we'd see some kind of a rate cut then that's fallen down to 20%. And now we're into the 50% range that there'll be a rate cut by April. But those same markets are saying by June, there's almost 100%. There's like an 87, 88% chance that we're going to see rate cuts by then. So I, I, I think, you know, those people that were at the front end of, of the expectations that we could get there maybe in March, uh, I think they're starting to push those to April. And the people that were in April are now to May. And the people in May are now pushing them to June. But I think the notion that we won't make it to the summer before we get some kind of a cut uh, is, is, is I, I think, I, I think the, the expectation is that we'll see some kind of a cut uh, by the summer. But there's loads of people who think we won't even get a cut over the course of 2024. So it's, it's really some, some live decisions coming up. And interestingly, Bank Canada meets next week and they're going to start holding news conferences at every one of these announcements rather than kind of every uh, two or three. So it'll be really good to get a sense from the Bank Canada where they see uh, we're at in that, that sort of narrative yet. Jimmy, I did want to ask you about uh, something Peter mentioned earlier, the Red Sea, but I feel like I shouldn't let this moment go by without asking you. Do you want to make your best guess? I, I don't know if it's unfair to ask you when you think we're really going to start to see rates go down. Well, I think one point that's important on the rates front is that we've already seen quite a bit of uh, a decline in, in the markets uh, when you look at uh, the five-year bond yield, which you know, dictates uh, what a, long, a, a lot of uh, mortgage products or, you know, uh, loan products in Canada uh, will uh, will cost. And so we've seen a 100 basis point decline uh, since the fourth quarter of 2023 in the five-year uh, bond yield. So that's, that's important. You're already seeing some accommodation, and we saw how the uh, housing market has started to respond to that. So if uh, the story is that uh, inflation is not quite where the Bank of Canada is going to be comfortable seeing it. We might see a reversal of that. So that might inject a lot of uh, volatility in terms of the, the housing profile uh, and the economy as a whole. So that's going to be something very interesting. I would say I, I haven't changed my call for uh, the Bank of Canada to initiate a process in, in April. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the more it goes, I think it, it wants to see better signs, especially on the wage front. Uh, it's, it wants to see how the economy uh, is adjusting. Uh, and, you know, if it's not conclusive enough, yes, you could see a case where uh, this timeline gets delayed somewhat. Okay, we in fact only have a couple minutes left, Jimmy. And I, I said I was going to ask you about the Red Sea, but I think I'd be remiss not to ask you about the prospect of a recession, in fact, in 2024 before we wrap. Well, uh, what's interesting is that, uh, you know, well, in the third quarter, we know that we had a, a pretty significant contraction across Canada, 1.1%. Uh, but when we looked, uh, we, we dug into the, re the details by province, what we, we know from uh, the Quebec Economic Accounts, they had a, a, a Quebec had a 0.8% contraction. In Ontario, it turned out to be a flat reading, which means that the rest of Canada, excluding Ontario Quebec, actually had a 2.2% contraction, which is pretty significant. And when we dig into the details, what we see is that 
pretty much across Canada, consumer spending is pretty much stalled. And that's quite remarkable because we have, uh, you know, a record pace of demographic growth. And despite that, you you're seeing consumer spending going nowhere. And we saw that uh, report by the Bank of Canada yesterday showing explicitly that consumers are retrenching. They feel that the impact of a higher rates uh, still has uh, ways to run. And, uh, and so uh, it's hard for me to see this as not leading to some kind of, uh, of uh, recession. Now, there's a, this whole uh, notion of a technical recession versus official recession. And, you know, the, the point is that we'll, we won't know before way after the fact uh, because it's so, such a close call. It's not really that important of a debate in my view. I think we can agree that the, the economy is rebalancing. That process has still further to go, I think, into 2024. But we're not expecting catastrophe either. That's actually the process that will bring the disinflation that will allow the Bank of Canada to provide the relief. Okay, Peter, a quick uh, closing thought for you on what to watch in 2024 beyond, obviously, uh, interest rates. Well, uh, look, I just riff a little bit off of what Jimmy says. And uh, to be clear, I base most of what I say on the notes I read that he writes. So, you know, it, 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 my, my, <laughs> my version is the best form of flattery, right? Won't be as smart. But, uh, you know, I, I think if you look at GDP per capita, we're, we're well into a recessionary territory. Uh, I think the smartest thing I've seen and read on this is somebody saying that, you know, it, it might not be a technical recession, but it's sure going to feel like one. And I, I think that sentiment is going to bleed into the data. People are going to retrench. We saw that in the Bank of Canada's consumer outlook. Um, it, it's going to be a rough first half of the year for sure. And as we look at more and more data coming in, that rough spat might stretch into the second half of the year more than we had expected. So I, I, I think a lot of people are going to be bracing for that as we move out of the, out of the, the, the opening stages of this year. Okay. Thank you both for giving us some perspective on it. Jimmy Jean is a chief economist at Desjardins and Peter Armstrong is the CBC's senior business reporter. Former U.S. President Donald Trump is closer than ever to becoming the Republican Party's presidential nominee, but he spent today in a Manhattan courtroom. Jury selection began in a second defamation trial brought against him by writer E. Jean Carroll. That jury will decide what, if anything, he owes Carroll for claiming she lied about a sexual assault accusation. The CBC's Chris Reyes has been following this story for us today. She joins me now. Uh, so, Chris, you were in court today. What happened? Well, Catherine, the most notable part of today is the fact that E. Jean Carroll and Donald Trump were in the same room. Arguably, that's the first time that's happened in decades. Trump sat two rows behind Carroll, essentially looking at the back of her head. They never made eye contact. I never saw E. Jean Carroll turn around to look at him. And that was for the entire proceedings. The better part of today was spent, as you mentioned, on jury selection and also the judge explaining to the jury exactly what their job is in this case. And that is to determine the damages on those comments that Trump made back in 2019 when he accused Carol of lying about the sexual abuse in order to sell books. The judge said that for the purposes of this case, it's already been determined that Donald Trump sexually abused Carol and also defamed her. And when the judge said that very visibly, Trump started to shake his head. Now, Carol's team also reminded the jury that not only do they have to determine the damages of the harm that these comments made for Carol, but also 
how to punish Donald Trump so he doesn't continue to defame her. He has repeated the comments that he's never met Carol, uh, that he didn't sexually abuse her. And he said those comments as late as last week, just down the street from here at his New York fraud trial. Opening statements wrapped today and Eugene Carroll will be called to the stand by her team tomorrow and we'll be here to see if Trump attends that day. And is he expected to testify? Well, Trump's team confirmed in court today that they will be calling uh, Trump to the stand. Uh, he will be allowed to attend his mother-in-law's funeral, which takes place this Thursday, which pushes his testimony for Monday. And then a verdict is expected shortly after that. This trial is not expected to last for very long. They're only calling a handful of witnesses. Trump Carol and uh, the editor of Elle magazine and just uh, a few, a couple of other uh, witnesses. E. Jean Carroll, in this case, is seeking $10 million in damages. Okay, thank you very much for bringing us up to speed on this. The CBC's Chris Reyes in New York City. The cost of living is on the rise again. Canada's annual inflation rate jumped to 3.4% rather in December. That's up from two consecutive months at 3.1%. As this chart shows, inflation is proving particularly sticky. It's fallen from its peak of around 8% in 2022, but it continues to clock in above the central bank's 2% target. Some economists say that makes an interest rate cut from Canada's central bank unlikely in the immediate future. It's a bit of a challenging period when, when the unemployment rate is, is rising and you've still got a relatively high inflation rate. That's, that's a tough position to be in. So what could the political fallout be? It's time to bring in the power panel. Emily Nicolas is a columnist with Le Devoir, Vanguard Strategy CEO Michelle Cadario, and here with me in studio is Matthew Dubay, pres- Vice President of Proof Stat- Strategies and former NDP MP, and Kate Harrison is Vice Chair at Summa Strategies. Welcome, everyone. Michelle, I'm going to start with you. I mean, we did know that in December, or at least there were predictions from economists, that there would be a bit of a bump in inflation. But I, I think of those moments where Christia Freeland was essentially celebrating or cheering the fact that inflation was going down. If you are the liberals, what are you thinking as you see these numbers? Oh, it's just, it's, it's bad news. There's no, no other way to wrap around it. First, families are suffering. You know, the that pressure um, in getting, when you're getting groceries, when you're trying to gas up your car, and that dread if you're actually having to go and renegotiate your mortgage. Um, that's what families are talking about. That's what families are scared about. And there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And, uh, you know, I don't, uh, I don't know that the Liberals were celebrating, but perhaps they were a little too happy um, that we had two stable months. Um, but this is something that's so unpredictable. Uh, and uh, and it's something that more and more people are just that that's it's all consuming. And so for the liberals, it makes it impossible to talk about anything else. Um, and yet there's no real, you know, easy solutions at hand. Uh, if there was, I, I'll, I guarantee that they'd be doing them right now. Um, I think that they've got to go back to fundamentals. I think that they've got to be thinking about, you know, your fiscal policy and anything that you can do there. Um, we're focusing very much on jobs and making sure that the unemployment rate doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, go sky high if there's anything they can do about that, keeping the economy going um, without overstimulating it. Again, terrible, hard, hard balance. Um, and also, you know, primarily 
um, being people who can actually empathize with what families are actually facing, what Canadians are facing out there, um, as uh, as we all struggle to kind of uh, deal with uh, where inflation is today. Kate, do you think that there is any room um, for the government to argue anything beyond we're consumed with this? I mean, is there any argument that, you know, gasoline prices, there's a lot of factors at play. We often hear a comparison to other G7 nations. Like, like, is there any way for a political party to talk about economic conditions like this that aren't just, uh, you know, a version of putting a paper bag over your head? Yeah, not that, not in a way that resonates with voters, I think. You know, you get a lot of that equivocating and, you know, the description of how hard things are and how difficult Um all the time from government officials, but it doesn't necessarily resonate with people. And I think that that's something the the liberals have struggled with quite a bit. They think that they can communicate their way out of economic bad times. At the same time, to Michelle's point, they've also struggled, I think, a little bit with that empathy piece, like really saying, like, we know it's bad. Instead, we get a lot of wiping away of, of people's current situations or, you know, kind of the, the sunshine that, that things will improve soon. So I think that they've struggled with that. Uh, and because they failed to kind of revisit some of the policies that contribute directly to this problem, such as uh, gas prices, the carbon tax, there's an impact there. You see provinces that are kind of putting a pause on that in order we, to help. We do, we do always have to say, right, this is like we just had the rebate the other day. So the sure. argument the Liberals make is the majority of families are getting more money back, right? That is the argument they make, but yes. they also, you know, put a special carve out for people <laughs> that primarily in Atlanta, Canada, because yeah. of the cost impacts associated with the yeah. tax. So they opened that window to mm-hmm. the fact that there was going to be an increase. You know, the theater around grocery prices, um, when they have actually very little in their control to to do anything about that, I would say beyond more competition and supply management, addressing some of the systemic issues associated with supplier costs. So these are things that the government can actually do something about, um, but these are really tricky political situations. So instead, we get the communications around it. Um, you know, the don't worry, we're working on it, but people aren't feeling that, and that is the the big challenge for them at the moment. Uh, Matthew, I, I wonder. Like, I don't want to ask you who benefits here because that it feels really crass right like these are they're not just numbers and it's easy to get lost in the numbers but we know from uh news stories that we were hearing over the course of the past year this this is tied to things like increased food bank usage um but maybe you could reflect a little bit about what it is like to be a politician when people are struggling obviously economic times are a bit different when you were an ndp mp but like what what it's like to be in a position of power and yet only have so much access to the the levers of power as kate's referring to well having not experienced sort of i mean granted Mm -hmm. we were there were some economic challenges at Mm -hmm. the time but not having experienced this type of situation at this magnitude uh, and, and the type of struggle people are going through now and you know there's always people struggling granted but what I would equate it to is when you are in taking an unpopular position or having to defend an unpopular position is that ultimately, you know, the, it's hard to separate the current status quo, the economy in this case, with the government's record. Um, and I, I do think it's fair when they point to other factors. But I think at the end of the day, if you're a liberal MP in your riding, you're trying to defend, you have to defend the status quo because otherwise you're repudiating your own government. So I think that's the bind that they have themselves in. And I don't think they've quite figured out as a government. But I do think there's easy things that they can fix. And I know there's going to be some liberals at home that are going to grind their teeth hearing me bring this up again. But that was the problem with the vacation store.
story, right? Was yeah. that it's that empathy piece. There's, I don't think the prime minister broke any laws. I don't think he contravened any rules. Um, but I do think it just it just makes it hard to be believable. If my kids, shout out to Danielle and Lydia at home, they've always wanted me to do that. Um, <laughs> if they're asking me for help yeah. on their homework and I'm looking at my phone and I'm like, just a sec, just a sec. Sure, it doesn't mean I'm not going to help them, but they don't believe it. And I think that's that's sort of the situation that you're in right now is the believability of it. And the less credibility you have, credibility is the hardest thing to build back in politics. And I think that's really where the government's at at this point. Emily, I mean, like, it, it doesn't seem to be a, um, the most heartwarming political strategy to say, like, well got to ride this out if you're the one in power. And if you're not, if you're Pierre Polyev, just keep beating on this drum. But but is that what it comes down to, is just hoping that this uh, problem is not as sticky as some economists are predicting and, and just hoping things get better by the time an election rolls around? I mean, it does help if things actually get better. However, uh, no, that's not what it comes down to. I remember very clearly... Uh, the tone of Christopher Freeland, uh, for example, during uh, the presentation of the fall economic statement, how it was all about, you know, what, how we're doing better than most uh, G7 countries and looking at, you know, the average of Kinyan and how on average certain groups of people are not struggling that much. And the thing is, the average doesn't exist. Um, it's no one, you know, there's just people. Um, and averages are great mathematical figure, but they don't speak to actual people's stories. Um, and G7 countries are very uh, far and don't change uh, the suffering of people who are struggling here in Canada or are worried about making uh, their mortgages or uh, having to um, go to food banks. Or so, so all of that reality is, is there. And uh, because Pierre Poyev has been saying that Canada is broken, the Liberals have been stuck in pretending that Canada is great and building that contrast. Mm-hmm. And by being stuck in building that contrast, what they're doing is being unable to acknowledge the suffering that actually exists in this country and are trying to reason people out of what they are feeling instead of validating their feeling, their anxieties, their lived experiences. And so that's not about the situation changing. Uh, It's about realizing profoundly that pretending that Canada is the most awesome place in the world is, uh, and, and, and that it is, and that, you know, having that as your core political communication belief is not helpful in a time of economic uh, disruption, the way that we're seeing right now. It will make you sound out of touch with voters who are struggling the most, who will look for either the Conservative or the NDP. There is no way outside of that recipe for political failure. And as long as the Liberals don't get that, they will continue to 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 uh, to have issues politically, regardless of how those numbers come out, uh, come up or, or down in, in, in the next months. Michelle, I did want to zero in on the carbon tax as Kate brought it up. In terms of managing that as an affordability issue, a communications issue, is there is there some wiggle room there for the Liberals? Because it did start to feel like quite a drag uh, on them, or at least part of the conversation about it towards the end of last year. Is there a way to, I don't know if it's, you know, change the channel's a little hackneyed there, but that's what's coming to mind. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, a, a way to, to, for them to change the conversation there. Well, you know, I suspect it'll be hard to change the channel when, um, you know, Pierre Polyev has his remote control fixed mm-hmm. on that one channel, right? Um, and as Kate said, you know, the Liberals kind of stepped in it and brought it up um, by opening up a carve-out 
for um, a particular region or a particular class of, of customer that's you know heavily heavily located in Atlantic Canada. Mm. And that started a bit of a me too um, of uh, provinces kind of leading the, the thought of, well, we have this type of heating system and, you know, it's equally expensive. And quite frankly, the, the premiers, you can't, you can't fault them for also standing up because if they weren't, then their own populace would be saying, well, Atlantic premiers stood up and said something like Atlantic coffee said something. Where are you? And so you kind of create this vicious circle. And once you've opened one door, it's very hard to keep all the other doors closed. Um, and so, you know, I think that um, if they're, my advice would be, don't just start opening doors now. Take a step back and figure out, is there something in this, po- in this policy framework that still addresses the goal um, and that maybe can be a nod to more Canadians having some relief, potentially, um, or on a, on a time-limited basis, or it's not about throwing out the policy because that's not that's not necessary. That's not what, what I don't think what Canadians expect. I think it's just about that little bit of of relief um, that acknowledges people's pain. Yeah, it was interesting, uh, Kate. One of my colleagues pointed out to me that the Prime Minister tweeted out that the carbon tax uh, rebates when they came in yesterday, he called them winter pollution price rebates. So I guess that's an effort to uh, that's a rebrand <laughs> to try to make the message a bit more appealing. Yeah, that comes back to a problem I think that has existed with the Liberals for some time, which is that again, if the policy itself is not working and people have turned on the policy, no, you know, kind of clever sloganeering is going to make people change their mind about it. And by you know producing that that carve out or or exception to the rule i really feel that on the carbon tax issue they they undermine themselves in a couple different ways first of all huge fodder for the opposition to seize on that as a key cost of living issue when the liberals were insistent that that was not the case and then for your other subset of voters that are supporting the liberal party because of their environmental postures and their initiative they are like wait a minute all along you said that this was the right thing to do and now we're making exceptions to that policy so uh, it it was a fail on both parts okay well i think we are going to leave the conversation there for today but thank you very much to the power panel today kate harrison matthew dubay michelle cadario and emily nicola Well, that's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. Power and Politics is on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Catherine Cullen sitting in for David Cochran. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.